0: The S&P, the stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. No, it's not irregular, no, it's not even a surprise, but it's still every bit as special. And nevertheless, well nonetheless, because Andrew Page, our brand new co-host, has rejoined us. I couldn't scare him away on Friday, and he's back. If you don't if you haven't listened to Friday's episode yet, firstly, shame on you. But secondly, Andrew is a former Motley Fool employee, a Friend of the Fool for Life, of course, and the founder of strawman.com. I gave him a chance for an absolutely blatant plug on Friday, and I'll do it again because, hey, (laughs) I'm a nice bloke and we appreciate him joining us for the podcast. And because if you haven't yet heard Friday's mail uh, Friday's episode, sorry, you're probably wondering what and who Andrew is. Mate, what exactly is strawman.com? Mate, uh, Strawman's just, honestly, it's just a better
1: place to go online and connect with other investors away from all the hype and the pumping and ramping and all that horrible stuff you see on so many forums. So look, I I like to describe us just as, as an online investment club, and it's one where We give everyone a a play money uh, portfolio, $100,000 in in, in play money. You can go and build a portfolio. And it's really the way that you signal to other people what you like and in what proportions. And you share your research. And it's all very accountable and transparent. And hey, come and join 17,000 other smart investors and and hopefully beat the market, which we've done a, 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 a stonkingly
0: good job of in the last few years. There you go. There's How's, the pitch, that, for, how's that for a strawman? Uh, strawman.com. <laughs> it's free. Uh, <laughs> check it. Check it out for yourself. It's uh, look. I said on Friday. You know, we're, we're frenemies to some degree. Our members could join you or join us. We hope they'll do both. Um, there are many, many, many worse places in the internet to to get your financial advice or or, or stock ideas from. Uh, and uh, look, you know. it, it <laughs> We, yes, we are. We are somewhat competitors to some degree, but we hope serious investors who are in at either service will consider the other one as as a complement uh, to their investing journey. And certainly, if they do nothing, uh, if, it, if if having both keeps them away from some of the other darker places of the internet, mate, that would be a no bad thing. Put it that way. Yeah, that's right, mate. And and look, um, it's not
1: either or, and. Uh, uh, once a fool always a fool right so um, i'm I, I think i think we all we all share a very similar investment ideology and approach and and thoughts towards the market so it's great it's great to be back it's great to get the band back together as i said
0: on friday absolutely so, it's fun mate it's yeah, fun yeah what's all this on on that's on Friday as our uh, new resident friendly curmudgeon replacing the last one. I mean, that in <laughs> all the nicest possible ways, referring both yourself and Doc. Uh, we are so, sorry to see Doc go, of course, but we are super excited to have you back, mate. Uh, it's great to be, uh, as I said on Friday, for listeners who don't. I haven't been listening long enough, and, and shame on you if it's you. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Andrew was my original co-host for Motley for Money. In fact, you mate were the host. You were you were doing all this lean-in stuff that I'm now doing. So, uh, mate, any, any success is is well mine, of course. Any blame goes to you, as as we always do. Uh, but uh, I, I should I should at least give you some good degree of credit for the uh, the, the phenomenon, the, uh, the the amazing success of, of Motley for Money. If I do big it up a little bit, just you know, mate. I'm just, just I'm just I, I think just you're going to call me on it because you're part of it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's just it's such look. Any format that allows uh, me to rant and mm. someone's prepared to listen, I'm I'm all for.
0: So <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> there you go. All right, mate. Let's uh, so let's let's get on with that. Speaking then. speaking of ranting, uh, let's yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. This is our special mailbag episode, mate. We uh, we did a couple of those while you were with us, but uh, so many questions now justified its own uh, mailbag episode. Hence, this Sunday special Sunday edition, as, as I always like to say. Uh, mate, a couple of couple of thoughts. Um, let's go with one from Patrick. Hi, Scott, and new host. A tip, that's you, mate. So you're, you're now a new host. Uh, I'll miss an earbani says, but I'm confident the Motley Fool podcast will still be my go-to for financial insights and investments and sorry, on investment strategies and ideas. I hope it will be, Patrick. I hope you'll stick with us. Um, if not, of course, I will blame Andrew because uh, he's the new guy. <laughs> so if you leave us now, then it's clearly his fault. Uh, he says, uh, hopefully a simple question. Is it better to choose ETFs that are hedged for current exchanges or those that aren't? I couldn't see any immediate plus or downside nor any significant difference when I looked at the management fees, mm. when I looked at the various Vanguard ETFs, so would value your insights. Appreciate all the hard work you do, and I'm looking forward to hearing who the new guest and permanent host is. Cheers, Patrick. Yeah. Well, I've answered that question for you, Patrick. I hope you're as excited as I am and a pleasure as I am that Andrew has rejoined us. Mate, um, ETFs, when you're buying them for stocks at ETFs that are based outside Australia yep. would you hedge for currency or would you let it swing and just take whatever you get when it comes to foreign exchange
1: I wouldn't it's, it's not it's not for me and and I should preface this by sort of saying you know it's, it's different strokes for different folks so it's not you know yep. because it's not for me doesn't mean that there's no place for them but 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 for me, I'll tell you the reason why is, is it, mm-hmm. it fundamentally comes down to the fact that I'm an ultra long-term investor. Um, you said in the last episode right. that everyone likes to think of themselves as long-term investors. <laughs> I am. I'm really yeah. – I've, I've had all of my money, uh, personal money in the market for over 10 years now. And I, and that will be the case for the next 20, 30, as, long as, as long as I'm around. And because of that – one thing you know with with exchange rates is that they absolutely fluctuate around but in over mm. time the biggest driver by far by by a country mile is the underlying earnings performance of a business. Mm. So if you get if you get the right kinds of businesses in there and there's a little bit of a currency a headwind against you you're still going to do really 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 well. Um ETF hedging or just hedging in general sounds smart, but you've got to remember it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes the currency will move in Mm -hmm. your favor and therefore you Mm -hmm. won't get Mm -hmm. that. And the other thing to consider is that hedging isn't free. You you pay for that. So you end up having this long-term tax on your returns for something Mm -hmm. that is probably going to be a pretty small, in the grand scheme of things, determinant for your overall returns. So yes, can currency Mm -hmm. really move around? Yes, can can it really uh, impact your returns over shorter time frames? Absolutely, it can. Is it a significant factor over a period of three, five years? N- not, not, not in my experience. What, what, what do you think? Mm.
0: No, I completely agree, mate. I think um, look, your, your first point is really valid. Different strokes for different folks. If if it simply makes you feel better um, to have a hedge product, I can't, I can't criticize anyone for doing that. If that's just, if it just simply, you know, you just, you just have one, one less bit of volatility. Then I think that's absolutely right, but as you say, it comes at a cost. Yep. What I think is, and no one's trying to be tricky about it or sneaky about it here, but you won't see that cost in the management fee. That mm-hmm. cost will come out of the total return. Yeah, uh, and it should, right? Because it's not, it's not, a, it's not a management cost in the sense that the manager themselves aren't. You know, it's part of the investment returns. Buying and mm. selling shares comes out of the, the return. The price you pay or lose comes out of the returns. Currency movements, if it's unhedged, comes out of the returns. Mm. And so it's it's appropriate that the, the hedging cost also comes out of the returns, not out of the management fees. So that's completely mm. appropriate. Mm. Uh, but just remember that as you do that, as you think about that, um, yeah, you, you're going to get lower returns overall over time, all else being equal. A couple of reasons you might. The first is volatility. I think that would make sense if it scares you. Um, probably have a think about, frankly, whether you want to be in shares because you're going to get plenty of volatility whether you're hedged or not. Secondly, might be timeframes. And the, this is the other thing, mm-hmm. mate, for me is if I if I had no choice over when I took my money out, if I had to take it out either on a given date or at a moment's notice, a again, I probably wouldn't be in shares. But B, if the Aussie dollar could be somewhere between fifty cents and a dollar ten on that date, and you didn't know what it would be, and you have no choice as to when you redeem that that money, then yeah, I, I think you probably want the certainty of hedging. You yeah. want to know that whatever I put in, I'm getting out just with the investment return alone. If you're taking US dollars back to Australian dollars and it's a dollar ten, that's going to hurt like buggery. If it's yep. fifty cents, you're going to feel like you're a genius, but you're you're, you're basically you know you exposed to that volatility. So again, I. I would fix that problem different ways by giving yourself more of a time frame or you know, managing your total portfolio so you weren't too exposed to those overseas assets if currency was going to become an issue for you on a given date or at a, at a given time. Uh, but those are the reasons why I could or would think about doing it. Otherwise, mate, like you, particularly if you're a regular investor, if you're investing regularly, adding regularly, and potentially drawing down regularly, you're going to get the, the weighted average of that, of that currency anyway, uh, which effectively mm. is what the hedging is doing for you. So uh, I, I, look... It's sold as a benefit for some people. It is genuinely a benefit. They just don't want to deal with it. For the rest of us, I think you're better off just sucking it up and and, and getting used to it. Unfortunately,
1: yeah. I think Make more some- money more money is more yeah. money is lost in trying to to reduce risk than just simply copying the risk. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, you can't. It, it is it is it is an unavoidable characteristic of investing. It is is it within the definition really of it, of investing. And so it's just like the more. Yep clever ways that people come up to reduce risk I, I just I I just think it's very counterproductive you just you 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 cop it it's it's the it's the nature of the beast and and frankly it, it can be a good thing um longer term because it's it's that that risk which which the the boffins tend to define as volatility which i think is a very poor definition of risk but that that volatility does lead to opportunity so
0: it it, it ain't it ain't all bad there you go question A uh, second question from Patrick. These are a week apart, by the way. I'm just catching up with Patrick's questions. Uh, a question on investment bonds. I don't know how much you know about investment bonds. I've had to do a bit of research on this one, so uh, no, no, uh, no grief for me if, you, if you're not across it. But he says, each week I feel like I come away with new information and just as importantly that certain important principles around investing are reinforced from your podcast. You answered a question about investing for kids recently and spoke about tax issues and trusts. I was hoping you could both share your insights into the value of investment bonds. I have an investment bond with Australian Unity for my one-year-old and thought it was the best option. However, I have heard but cannot find good information to confirm that simply investing in shares and transferring to the child's home at age 18 may be more advantageous. Your thoughts about investment bonds in general as compared to other forms of investing for kids would be much appreciated. Cheers, Patrick. Mate, how much do you know about investment bonds? um next to nothing (laughs) i know what a bond is (laughs) so um i'll let you go first weird right they're they're long-term structures that are i i don't actually know the full history of this stuff but effectively they are essentially tax free after 10 years if you hold them for 10 years which makes them sound attractive however they also pay tax at the corporate rate of 30 percent during their operation Mm. and On top of that, you take investment risk. And so there's no easy answer as to whether investment bonds are good or bad, unfortunately. I did my own research prior to this. I know know regular listeners will be surprised. I did (laughs) look, look into this. The problem with investment bonds is you've got to take into account the investment returns, the taxes the bond pays internally inside the bond, and then the transfer to your child's name. Now, like most things, and we talked about tax already a couple of times, Andrew, in the short time you've been back on the podcast, it's mm-hmm. um, simply say, hey, look, it's, tax, it's tax-free when you transfer it. That's great, isn't it? And goes, yeah, that's great. And it is, and it is, except like doing things just to avoid tax or minimize tax, uh, you can miss the forest for the trees a little bit. What I've seen on some investment bonds is their returns can be very, very ordinary. And so investing just for the tax saving, which otherwise seems great, doesn't work out quite so well, If you're paying a whole lot of fees and taxes on during the life of the product because what you eventually transfer out is reduced by those costs on the way through so again it's it's again like that tax story of are you trying to maximize your after tax return or you're trying to pay less tax investment bonds are sold because they're tax free on transfer and i get how on first blush that would be a really attractive thing to do Uh, but again if you've paid a fortune in tax or fees or terrible returns for the 10 years you hold it whatever you're transferring at the end actually might be less than if you had simply paid tax on a better returning asset in the first place. What about so, mate? I'll put just that as a general thought. Yeah, just I'm um, asking uh, for myself
1: here as well. So that I, I that, that all that all makes a huge amount of sense. But just to Patrick's point, is it different when it comes to investing on behalf of your of your kids? Um, you know who, who who may well be well below eighteen, and and it just it's an easy way to do that with some benefits. And as he says, his 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 bond is putting it into VAS, which is just the the Aussie market. Is is yep. is that a different consideration if it's if it's for a child?
0: So a couple of things. I think it can be potentially. I know I was going to go into it next is exactly that. It it does depend on the bond. So you it, it's very very hard to give a general view. That's what people should do. Because I don't know Australian unity's fees and charges through the life of the bond. Um, and again, remember, you're paying company tax at 30%. I'm not even entirely sure whether you get to use the value of the frank credits on the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are questions that are worth asking an advisor. As I said, most people invest in them because of the tax benefits on transfer, and I get that, um, but miss the fact that there are internal costs. For example, you're paying company tax on the proceeds during the life of the bond, where you're not, if you own the shares yourself, you're paying, uh, you know, tax at your own marginal rate, less the franking credits on the dividends. Um, and, and so there's a whole lot of change on the way through. So mm. my, my honest answer is it depends, which is, like, mm. which is you know, unfortunately, a very common answer for investment advice, which is it really depends on what you invest in, what fees your bond provider are, are charging mm. uh, and, and how the transfer happens at, at the age of 18. I... Uh, I can see the benefit of it, but again, if you think about the taxes you're paying during the time and then afterwards, if you redeem it, by the way, inside 10 years, there's also extra taxes to be paid because you don't meet the conditions. So I don't claim to have absolute expertise on this one. Uh, Your question is absolutely right, Andrew. It depends on what you invest in, what returns you get and all that kind of stuff. If I was going to do it, uh, like all investing, I would choose a broadly diversified index and a super low fee provider or the lowest fee provider you can find. And that puts the odds more squarely in in your own favor. Mm. okay interesting any more thoughts on that mate no 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 I I learned
1: I learned a lot there thank you
0: oh well I wouldn't say a lot but a little bit let's go to a question (laughs) from Chris he says hi Scott though I'm sad Doc is leaving the podcast I'm sure you found a great new co-host no sorry Chris we just got (laughs) you sorry Uh, sorry mate (laughs) on another podcast Chris says I heard that some of the larger ETF providers may be earning passive income by lending securities to short sellers have you heard of this and if so would it be a concern when investing in those ETFs? Thanks, and that's from Chris. Andrew, mm. your thoughts? Well, yeah, what an interesting question. I hadn't
1: thought of this. So look, when when someone uh, sells uh, shares short, they sell them before they own them. Well, they, they actually have to borrow them off someone. And if you're a very, very long-term investor who has no intention of selling, it can be a great way to earn a bit of extra cash, particularly, as he says, if he's one of these larger ETFs, uh, it's, just, it's just like a little bit of extra money for jam. The the, the risk, though, of course, is, is that while they are lent out, you are unable to to uh, sell them. Well, someone sold them on your behalf. You're just waiting for someone to buy them back at a certain point so they can they can pay you back the shares. And during that period, uh, as I understand it, you, you, you yourself are prevented from selling. So in some instances there might be a situation where they lend out the shares, the shares absolutely get smashed and by the time mm. they get them back they they haven't had that opportunity. Um mm. That being said, ETFs, depending on the ETF, and as you said, it depends, some of them are extremely big and diversified. And if they're doing it on a smaller portion of some of the larger, very liquid, perhaps higher quality businesses, it's probably a sensible thing to do. But if they're, if they're doing it with large swathes of the portfolio, uh, it, it it potentially isn't as smart. So I don't know. What do you think?
0: I... Um, so I- <laughs> Shorting is a really funny thing, right? People respond to shorting really emotionally. And, I, okay, so I've got, I've got a few different thoughts on this. Firstly, if it was up to me, you know this, Andrew, well. I've, I've certainly yeah, I've, I've heard this I before. Would ban, <laughs> I would ban all derivative trading on the ASX with the exception of physical products. Mm. If farmers need to forward sell pork bellies or corn or wheat, I have no problem with that. Everything else that's a derivative, of just simply a paper asset, you know, a, a double you know, leveraged iron butterfly condor swap on csl shares uh, like that yeah it's it, it's it's gentrified gambling i get rid of it all i think it's a, it serves no useful purpose on the market at all i would get rid of it tomorrow so that's something my oh, mate, that, that,
1: that, that's that's a that's a that's a rant that we uh, need to get into uh, at some future
0: episode. <laughs> i disagree i disagree <laughs> with you actually i'm
1: i'm i'm pro shorting but that's that's a whole other bag of uh, uh of fish or whatever the phrase is i don't mate, i don't want to as-
0: as always, you're entitled to be wrong. I've said that before. I'll say it again. Uh, so we'll, we'll, let's, let's, let's mark that one, mate, for, for a week. We don't have yes. much content going because yep. I'm sure we can make a full podcast out of that one alone. Four hours um, right there. So I would do that. My second thought, however, is despite that view, uh, I, I think there's nothing necessarily inherently bad for the owners of shares in that shorting if you're okay with the volatility that can influence or be party to creating. Mm. So short selling can, in some circumstances, send prices down uh, because people are borrowing shares, then selling them to you know to, to to benefit from being short, and that selling pressure can push shares down. So it can be bad in terms of volatility and short term performance. It can Although also push time- shares as up, as about- GameStop has uh, demonstrated. <laughs> Well, they, well that, this, 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 that's the closing of the shorts. That's the other mm-hmm. thing, right? So the short mm-hmm. squeeze is pushing the shares up. Yeah. Uh, but the shorting itself doesn't necessarily cause a problem. In fact, in the short term, it may create some volatility, may push shares down. But at some point, when that selling pressure equalizes, you can only sell short a certain portion of the shares available. So at some point, when that's been done, um, you, you kind of you get some sort of equilibrium. And again, over mm-hmm. time, the value of the business will out rather than the. Um, you know, the the activity of of buyers and sellers, right? Mm, So if you believe that that's true, and I do, then you don't need to fear short selling as a long-term investor. You might not like it. I don't like the volatility it creates. I don't like the fact that it pushes my share price down. That feels a bit ugly and uncomfortable, but that's okay. Secondly, um, or thirdly, sorry, these guys make money from lending those shares. Now, if I'm an ETF owner, is in other words, if I've invested in the ETF and I can make some money um, by, you know, like I own Berkshire Hathaway shares, right? I will hold those shares I expect until I die or my kids can hold them you know, sell them after I die whatever they want to do with the shares um, if if I can if I earn some money by lending those out for short sellers because I'm never going to sell them mm. then hey I, I get money for jam that is literally yeah. money for doing what I'm already going to do which is holding the shares and forgetting about them if someone wants to pay me a couple of percent for that every yeah. year so they can short sell my shares I don't care I'm not going to sell them so <laughs> what, what do I care right so there's yeah. that I think you know, while yep. while I don't like shorting, I have no problem with the ETF providers profiting from that shorting. Uh, and as you say, Andrew, I think there is some risk potentially at scale that if everybody wanted to redeem those short sold shares quickly, they couldn't get hold of them. That would be real in an ETF perspective, though. You're not going to need to, right? Because mm-hmm. you hold the proportion of those shares uh, that, that that are represented by the index, right? So mm-hmm. if BHP is, I don't know, 15% of the index, you don't need to sell them all by the know what happens with the shares if it's an ETF. Mm. Uh, the ETF is; it will remain fifteen uh, percent invested in BHP the whole way through. If the weighting falls because the share price falls, well, unfortunately for the ETF, that's already taken care of by the share price fall in yeah. the ETF as well. You don't sell BHP shares when the share price goes down. The ETF doesn't buy them when they go up. They already get the benefit of the ups and downs or the costs of the downs because they own the shares. So yeah. um, I'm not. I'm not. Um, uh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> that they, uh, they are doing it I'm not worried that they're doing it I don't l- love the concept of shorting as general as I said but it's not it's not a concern for me no get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m
1: all
0: right here's one for, from Ryan he says uh, hi Scott just a quick question you can, use, uh, you can or not use it's for your five star podcast good man Ryan mm-hmm. uh, he said it might four, help four, four star My, now <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, Ryan, I'm, I'm hoping Ryan's already given them. I'm, I'm assuming he's already put those stars to work and you won't take it back. Will you, Ryan? Please, please. My question is in regards to your recommendations. I've been subscribed to Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor for 12 months and I buy all the recommendations, but it doesn't leave much in the fun account. I'm not sure what the fun account's used for, Ryan. Maybe you can let us know. I forgo this, knowing in the long run it will be worth it. But listening to the last deep dive, you said if or when you buy the stock. I figured that picking a few of the recommendations would hinder all the potential for growth because the recommendations will beat the market on average, and the FOMO I have with recommendations is hard, being it may be the next Amazon. I guess my question, in short, is how would someone distinguish between something they should decide to buy or not buy, or is my buy them all no fun strategy the safest bet? <sighs> and I'll grab this one, given it's a, a full question. You can you can throw some thoughts on sure, it. At the end. Sure, sure. Um, look, so here I, I have I have. It's, it's, you're right, Ryan, to say that our scorecards are built as if our members buy every one of the stocks. And absolutely, some do well, some do badly, uh, and most are in between somewhere. I'm happy to say more do well than don't, and the average result is good. So if you want to mirror our result, you absolutely should buy every single stock. And in fact, as I said, that's the way the scorecard is, is, is counted. It's managed that way. We don't make recommendations there, but we're only going to buy some of them, or you should only include some of them in the, management, or the, or the measurement. Sorry. So you've got that absolutely right. When I said if and when you decide to buy, I have a... I have a uh, this is the behavioral part of investing, right? And this is where it's important. If you think about the way you would buy shares or potentially sell them, I wanted to recognize and realize the fact that many members don't have the confidence you have in our stock picking. Now, I, I, I love the fact you buy every recommendation. I would absolutely love every member to buy every recommendation. So the first part of your question is, my recommended strategy for my share advisor members is, yes, buy every stock. That That's what I prefer you do. But... If you're someone who's going to say well i'll do that but if it starts to fall i'll sell or if i start to get worried i'll sell then you actually run the risk of making your returns worse because we know kogan right was nine then six then 30 then 12. if you're still holding you're getting the average turn we're getting and if the shares go back to 30 which i hope they do you'll get that value as well but if you're someone who said well, I bought it at 15 because it was a buy and you kind of said I should, but I don't really like the business and I'm, I'm a bit worried about it and it might go badly. It goes to 30, you go, oh, thank goodness I was wrong. It goes to 12, you say, oh, I knew it, I was right. And you sell. If and when it goes back to 30 and you miss that run back up, you're actually going to have hurt your own returns by doing so. So the, when I say if and when you buy, what I'm really saying is for some people, they will, they will stay the course better if they've convinced themselves or we've convinced them, they should buy the stock for rational reasons. In other words, rather than buying it because I said so, they've listened to the argument and they've decided to take the punt because they believe in what I've said. And why, why I make that distinguish, why I distinguish between those two points to be a little clearer uh, is because if you're going to buy everything and hold everything and only sell when we say sell, then do that. That's my number one recommendation. But if you can't or won't, I want to make sure whatever stocks you do buy, if you or anyone else listening, are the ones that they're convinced they want to hold so that when times get tough, and they will, Mm -hmm. they don't freak out, they don't sell out of a lack of conviction, but they say, no, 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 I was convinced at the time, I'm still convinced, I'm going to hang on. And that's the group I'm talking to with the if, when comment. But mate, you're right, buy everything please. Um, But if not, make sure you're convinced that you won't sell if times get tough on the ones you do buy. Mate, uh, not, that's not the full question, but do you, have, do you have thoughts on kind of that strategy in general? Well, look, as an ex and as someone who ran uh,
1: a service there, I, I, I agree with everything that you say. One, one of the things that I often encourage people with is that there's no shortage of, of tips and ideas that are out there. I mean, they're everywhere. Mm. Um, I've got a website that's built around that exact thing. Um but what I'm also very fond of saying is that you can borrow the idea, but you can't borrow the conviction. So it's all good when the share price oh, nice. is going up and someone like that, that you someone that you like is, is is performing well, and it's very easy to go, oh, well, this is this is a great story, and I buy it. And mm. you you said it. Times will get tough. It's not like they might get tough. <laughs> like they're guaranteed to get tough. <laughs> Even if you pick the best company on the ASX. 10 years ago, you know, if, if you'd bought, I don't yeah. know, CSL or after pay or any of these kinds of, you, the amount of 30% plus drawdowns that you suffered along the way are absolutely huge. Yeah. And the person who holds through that is the person that, not who got the original idea, but the person who built conviction around that. So I am always mm-hmm. fond of, of and, and as, as you know, when you're running a service, you're putting it out there to thousands of different people, everyone in different temperaments, different life situations, yeah. Yeah. all of that kind of stuff. So so it's, it, it's why it is called general advice. But what you need to do as a subscriber of The Fool, or no matter where you're getting your tips from, is is to is to say thank you for the great idea. I, I appreciate mm-hmm. what your investment thesis is, but then go and look at it yourself. <laughs> you know, you, it's 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 kind of sounds a bit harsh, but it's all care, no responsibility. It's your money; no one cares more about it than you. And, and you're the one who has to make those decisions at the end of the day. So, so these are great sources of information, but, but, but take it as a first step and follow through with your own research. I dare say, if you're like you and me, Scott, you'll actually find it a hell of a lot of fun and incredibly rewarding. And you'll just develop your investing skills over time and, and, and get better and better and, and better at all of this kind of stuff. So, so yeah, um, own, own, own the idea. Don't just borrow the idea. Love it, mate. I love that idea. That's really
0: cool. There you go. Great advice. Hey, um, next question. Now I, I, I'm going to hold you to time on this one, Andrew, because you can, you and I can talk. We've 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 been at <laughs> Osbys together. It's been known and the, to uh, the call that goes for an hour. We've 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 well, we've, we've, we've practically, <laughs> every single time we've done it together, we've uh, we've run out of time. So uh, I don't want I don't want this podcast to go forever. And this is a question on property, and I've got to say that that Uh-oh. fills me with fear because I may not get another word in between now and the end of the uh, end of the podcast. Now, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy sent us a message and he was talking about my comments on, on housing. You may well agree with him, you may disagree with him, but I'd be keen to get your thoughts while I mm-hmm. give mine. Jimmy says, hi, mate. I'm a podcast listener. I have a question you might want to address on the pod. I've taken exception to your analysis of the house price situation being particularly powered, as I said, by low interest rates. I would first make the argument, says Jimmy, that interest rates have been low for the better part of 15 years with the last five being especially low. Prices have not increased at the rates we have seen during the COVID period. I would assert that a lack of supply is the cause of prices rising rapidly. A quick Google search on my part found this, and he quotes, According to CoreLogic, the number of homes on the market nationally is down 27.8% on 2020, with detached housing in particular, Falling well behind previous years. Mm. Now he says, while deducing causation from correlation is a complex beast and well above by pay grade, it seems highly superficial to say that slight decreases in already low interest rates have caused significant price increases when supply has fallen out of the market. Add to that, when you reduce supply, you reduce the sample size for the average house price and are likely introducing some further bias around the type of house that's being sold. What do I mean? The bottom end of town, he says, is far less likely to be selling right now for a multitude of largely intuitive reasons. Would love to hear your take on this. So, Andrew, I've in the past said, I think (laughs) low and falling rates has contributed meaningfully, perhaps mostly to higher house prices. I would add to that the financialization of housing, the fact that we are pushing the envelope on affordability, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jimmy's right. Is it, I rates? is it supply? And you have five minutes. Go. Oh, only five minutes. Um, (laughs) I've got to uh, keep it a time, dude. Can can I just preface
1: this by saying, and anyone who (laughs) listens to me, the first, the first go round with the triple M uh, podcast, podcast is I have been so demonstrably wrong on property for such a long period of time that anything I say next should be instantly thrown in the bin. It's, it has, I've been a bear on property for a long time and, and I've just, yeah, so, so, so what the hell do I know? So all of that, all of that being said, um, I think, I think interest rates are absolutely a, a massive factor. We could probably argue as to what is the biggest factor, but I, I, I would say it's, it's easily the biggest factor. So what most people hmm. do is that most people borrow the maximum amount that they can <laughs> do you know what i mean yep. so it's not a, it's not no one does this high sophisticated financial risk adjusted analysis blah 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 basically they say they go to the bank and they say what can i borrow and the bank says well because interest rates are now this you can actually borrow that um, and let's not mm. let's not forget some of the uh, easing restrictions that are in place outside of interest rates and other sort of silly things that have happened in the past as well. So so when when the bank says to you, hey, here's here's, here's a two million dollars, you can go out and buy a property. You, you'll go you'll go look around for two million dollar properties. Um, so so I think it's I think it's a, a huge driver as to the su- su- supply um, uh, dynamic. I don't I don't I don't buy that. Um, there's mm. something like. What is it? It used to be something like 40% of in, of property owners were investment investors. Or something like I'm getting that wrong, but there's there's some right, huge right, proportion right. of houses out there. It just needs to be reshuffled. It's not like we don't have enough houses. It's just yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's, yeah. it's 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 just the the, the way in which they sort of owned and all, all all divided up. And there could be a hell of a lot of supply yeah. that comes onto the market next year, uh, or as we saw in 2020, we, we can we can see that restricted. But that's that's very yeah. very very, very short term uh, uh, periods. I think when you look over longer term periods. Uh, you're going to find that absolutely interest rates is the biggest determinant, and there's been really we don't have time to go into it now, but there's some really interesting papers that actually address that specific question with supply, and from the ones that I've been reading, it's been a while now, but it's basically saying actually there's no there is no great shortage here but particularly when it comes to two bedroom units my god they're just they're everywhere so so <laughs> yeah. I, I i just think you know we, we can we can have an interesting academic argument about all of this but 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 interest mm. rates are mm. just so massively important if interest rates were to go up even one percent from here i would i would yeah. chop off my left arm if that didn't have a big impact to property prices
0: yeah, I think I think you're right. Mate. I, I I I won't I won't restate my, my general views, but I think the financialization of housing when I talk about that, what I, I, I it's exactly your point of the, the question simply is now how much can I borrow? And the lower rates are, the more you can borrow. Here's the thing though, this is the only thing I would say to Jimmy is it's it's one thing to if you think about the maths, right? A a, a 15 basis point, so we rates dropped from from 0.25 to 0.1 recently, okay? Now, if rates drop from 4.9 to 4.75, that decrease, if you do the maths on the percentages, isn't much, right? But if it falls from 0.25 to 0.1, you're effectively halving the interest bill. Now, that's the official cash rate. That's not the cash rate we're all being charged. But even still, again, a decrease from 3 to 2.85 is a more meaningful decrease than from six to six po- to 5.85, right? It, it just, the maths has, it, you just simply when you do that, run it through the calculator, you can afford to borrow a truckload more at those higher rates. And in fact, I've seen some else out there that that's exactly what's happened. The other thing is don't forget the affordability numbers haven't, the, the, the amount we're paying back per month has hardly changed. So mm. while prices go up, affordability hasn't moved. And that to me is the, is the key determinant terminal, the key factor here. It's really, it's showing in maths, you know, we're mm. prepared to pay X percent of our incomes, and when the rates go down, we can simply buy more house for the same dollars. So we still borrow the same dollars. If, we, if we're all rational, we'd say, hey, I'm just going to buy my $700,000 house. I'll just have more money left over because rates are going down. Fantastic. Mm. I'll have more money in the back pocket, but we don't because you know, it's an auction market, either active or silent, passive auction effectively, where every property up for sale gets sold and, or gets offered. And so the available buyers are there, mm. which goes to Jimmy's point to some degree, Andrew, in terms of the, um, the supply, I think that's part of the story. But again you know it's only part of the story if you assume that people will pay any price anyway for that limited supply yep. so you, you know limited supply could mean well price go up, so people leave the market if the prices get too high but they're not leaving the market they're bidding up and up and up those prices showing there is a propensity to pay that extra money yeah I think that's the key one right the affordability yep. hasn't hasn't changed um, if prices went up and pushed people out of the market prices wouldn't change. Uh, because the, the 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 marginal buyer would leave the market. In this case, the marginal buyer is paying a higher price because they can afford to, because rates are going down. In my view, I'm sure supply has some tangential uh, impact, particularly maybe in certain suburbs. That's possible. The only thing I would say too, mate, is the house price averages the way that CoreLogic and other people do them. They do try and do like for like comparisons. So mm. if you're saying, well, hang on, that you know people are selling mansions but not selling one bedroom units, therefore the average price is going up. They do allow for that. They do try and compare. It's 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 imprecise, and you say the sample size is right. A lower sample size will make the data a bit noisy but don't forget it should go in both ways right (laughs) noisier data should have the same impact on the upside and the downside rather than just on the upside and so if you're seeing a, a movement only on one side of the curve there's a very decent chance there's something to that if not perfect data there's something to that reality
1: yeah I just say quickly i, I want I want them? to I want to uh, hat tip to, to Jimmy in terms of uh, supply and demand is is one of these things you learn in high school um, but it is such a mm. fundamental yeah. law of the universe I guess when it comes to economics that it's it is absolutely yeah. a factor i don't I don't want to suggest that that it isn't I just think in in mm. our market on average it's not nearly as big a factor as as mm-hmm. interest rates just for clarity
0: yeah I think that's right I think that's right Mate, it's a question Oh, just let's, let's uh, we'll finish this off now with a question from Jack. The question says, I've got two questions. Well, two questions. There you go. <laughs> I'm a long-time listener and subscriber to EO SA in Australia. That's Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor and in the US. First, it's a sadlossseed.go, but I'm sure he's on to bigger and better things. I think that's probably true. Now, he says, first question, share harvesting. What's your opinion? I've looked into it and I, over the last 10 years, the average discount was 9%. So even with the high initial costs, with brokerage and effort to buy one share in the whole ASX 200, it seems straightforward to make money. Thoughts? Do you know an exchange that allows you to buy one share with reasonable brokerage? Most exchanges I've found have a $100 limit. Your thoughts on share harvesting, mate? Uh, Mate, it just dropped out there a little bit, our Zoom feed. Can you just repeat the question then? Apologies (laughs) for that. Sorry. Jack had a question on share harvesting. Oh sure uh, and saying you know just it, there's money to be made 9% per year on average to be made from that uh, just to buy one share in everything and taking advantage of and I, I assume you're talking about share purchase plans here the ability to kind of buy discounted share purchase plans because you're an existing holder he's saying hey if I held one share in each of the um, one share in each of the companies I got take advantage of the share purchase plans when they came along I could buy them at big discounts and make a fortune just doing that why not do it? And his second follow-up was, do you know anyone I could buy one share through? Do you have any thoughts on, on share harvesting through share purchase plans?
1: Yeah, I, well, it's interesting. I, I don't want to um, spook anyone else, but I, I know there's a, a company out there that's uh, launched a product that does exactly that. And um, hmm. yeah, I... Uh, I think it's one of these things that that rests on certain assumptions that have sort of tended to be true in times, but I I just don't have the confidence that there's any real statistical validity to that. There's no law out there that says that a share purchase plan is going to be offered at an attractive discount and that the market is going to trade post post that share purchase plan at a, at a premium or that you'll be able to get a chance to sell it at mm-hmm. that price. So I'm not sure that average of 9% is probably uh, well an average and the, and that the, the, there have been exceptions to the rule within that. So it, mm-hmm. it just seems like I'm, I'm like you, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned, a bit curmudgeonly, but I, I think it, the more sophisticated these sort of products get, the more that there's something touted as a free lunch, the more I am concerned. And I'm not an <laughs> expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert in this, yeah. this field. So maybe yeah. I'm missing. I, I haven't looked into it, so maybe I'm missing something. But anytime someone says to you, hey, here's a 9% free kick, the law of capitalism by its nature – Tends to arbitrage yeah. those kinds of things. If,
0: if, <laughs> that's right. If,
1: it's like it's like that old joke where you know two economists are walking down the street and one of them says, "Hey, look, there's a there's a hundred dollar hundred dollar bill on the ground." And the other one says, yep. "Don't yep. pick. You know, it's, no, it, it doesn't exist. If if it did, someone would have picked it up." You know, and that's yeah, it's, right. it's the yep. nature yep. of these. It's the nature of these things that the, the very action of exploiting mm-hmm. these inefficiencies renders them less and less valuable over time. So you know.
0: I think, that's, uh, I think that's right man. I don't know what, what do you think? I, I think that's right I think yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm loath to say there's money to be taken don't do it because if there's money to be taken there's money to be taken um, and so you know mm. if there's an opportunity there then you know why wouldn't you? Um, so on one hand you know would I say don't do it? No I probably wouldn't say don't do it I have to say though I do wonder whether you want to be a little bit careful not to major in the minors here um, whatever time, effort, energy you spelt doing that <laughs> <laughs> buying, you know, one, one share in 200 different companies on the off chance, the paperwork, the hassle, the drama. Maybe the cash is ready, maybe it's not. Do you not invest other money because you're waiting to leave the money just in case there's a share purchase plan that comes up? Um, is there enough, to your point about statistical significance, will there be enough for the right companies coming up to actually like, help you make that money? Um, capital gains tax, of course, if you make that money, you've got to hold it for a year to get the capital gains tax discount. Over that year, maybe the shares in, in rubbish companies who raise capital, you know, lose money and you kind of end up getting done or you sell early and you're paying maximum capital gains tax. At some point, the ASX considers you a, a trader and therefore you have pay income tax, not just capital gains tax. If you're doing it as a as a matter of course, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I get the appeal. Um, I can see why you'd want to do it. I, I personally wouldn't bother. I think I'd, I'd concentrate larger amounts of money if I had them, rather than splitting them across 200 stocks and finding the best companies I could find. A 9% return is nice, but if you can get a 10 or 12 or 15% return from a better company um, without the hassle and drama, I think I'd probably take that up. So again, I don't want to discourage you from you know, doing something if you think there's money to be made. It just doesn't feel to me like there's enough there to really genuinely make it work. Mate, uh, there's yeah. a second question, but I'm going to hold this one on notice because I really like it. And I want, I want you and I to have a think about this, mate. Here's the question. Second question from Jack is, given the number of companies... If you could only choose four metrics to filter for potential growth stock investments, what would that be, and what range of values would the share have to fall in to qualify for a deeper look? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, mm. to tease that question for next week because I love these sort of questions that kind of is a bit of a hey, you know, if you, had to, if you had to really, you know, really distill it down, what would you go with? So Andrew, there's our homework for the next seven days. I like it. Till I like the, it. Regular podcast, but uh, seven days till a mailbag. So Jack, hold that thought. We will cover that question for you this time next week. In the meantime, Andrew, thank you for joining me. I've had a I've great had a fall pleasure catching up with you again and having a chance to have a chat through the podcast. Thank you for making yourself available to me and our members to to have well, or listeners to have this conversation. Really appreciate you uh you taking the time and, and making the effort. And of course if you do well, want to get more from Andrew, go to strawman.com. If you want to get more from us, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Catch you later. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may
1: have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au
0: forward slash triple M.
1: The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services License 400691.